0: So I pastored in a couple of different churches for a number of years before into one. And in those other churches, I had the privilege, the pleasure of being a pastor more dedicated to youth than to young adults. And so over more than two decades, I've seen many families and many family situations. And there's a couple of rules all families have rules, but there's a couple of rules that I think that rise up in importance to me. Things that keep the balance right without burdening people with a whole lot of rules. So here are two rules that I think are super handy, and maybe you already know them. Who knows? Um, The first is honor your mom, and the second is tell the truth. And I tell my kids all the time, the worst thing you can do is tell a lie because it breaks the relationship since all good relationships are based on trust. So I heard a comedian tell a story that followed the lying part anyways, and it's just a lie story. But this guy is babysitting his cousin, and the kid is a notorious liar. He's about four years old, and he bumps into the truth every now and then. Lying is a way of life, especially when it comes to cookies. So uh, have you ever met anyone like this? Little Patrick has his hand behind his back, just loaded with cookies, so many he can barely hold them all. Hey, Patrick, did you take one cookie? Yes. Uh, Hey, hey, Patrick, did you take only one cookie? Pause. Yes. Show me both hands, Patrick. Hands up, innocent face. (laughs) Hey, Patrick, lying is a really bad thing. My dad tells me it's the worst thing we can do in any good relationship. So, Patrick has heard this kind of thing for a while. And then a couple of weeks later, a similarly heinous crime has been committed. Blah, blah, blah. Patrick, lying is the worst thing you can do. Pause. Thinking is going on, right? And then Patrick just blurts it out. No, it's not the worst thing. I know a worser thing. Okay, okay Patrick, what's worse than lying? Go, Worshipping the devil. <laughs> That's some serious escalation there. So, So now, there are three rules. Honor mom, don't lie, no devil worship. You don't worship the devil, do you, Patrick? No, we don't. So it's easier to have just a couple of rules because if you cover the basic things, that pretty much lays the groundwork for all the rest of the stuff. So back at our road trip with Jesus. Jesus does something similar, but he takes it even a step further. And if you're just joining us, we are in episode 9, which also happens to be episode 11 of The Upside Down. 9 in chronology, but 11 in delivery. This has been our chance to follow Jesus from his introduction to the world as an adult at the Jordan River, all the way to the cross, and then to the resurrection, making him the savior of the world. And that happens actually in episode 11. And we are in episode 9 right now. So we're a little bit out of order, but I'm sure you can figure it out. And if you go back online, you'll be able to put them in the right order. We have said throughout the series that Jesus was not an and. Jesus was an instead of. That he came to this place to replace everything that was In place. He came to introduce, as we've talked about previously, on the upside down, a new covenant. That's what we talked about last episode. Uh, A new kind of relationship between God and and humanity. He came to institute the new command, and that's basically the fine print of the new covenant, which that's what we're going to talk about today. And then he left his new movement. That's us, the church. So throughout this time with this guy, throughout that roughly three-year journey through Galilee and Judea, um, that part of the world, he would be dropping hints. He would say things like this, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And they go, the audience would say to each other, go, yeah, yeah, we've heard it said. That's what our parents said. And it's what their parents said. Because you know what? It's what Moses said, all right? Who do you think you are? And Jesus would smile and say, hey, just keep paying attention. He claimed to be greater than the temple. Well, if you're greater than the temple, then you don't need the temple. And if we're not going to have a temple, well, then what are we going to have? What, what are you talking about? So he insisted that the great people go to the back of the line, right? And then in a religious system that valued physical cleanliness, Jesus insisted that the people who had the holiest hearts often had the dirtiest hands. And Jesus would touch unclean people, and and he made them well. He made them new. It was an indication that something new was on the horizon. But of course, his upside down value system was not of this world. And it would be in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. So conflict was inevitable, and that's kind of where we left off last episode on the upside down. It turns out that Jesus was not hard to find, but he was hard to arrest because everywhere he went, there was a crowd that was glad to see him, glad to be around him. So as Jesus goes to have this long-anticipated Passover meal, and with just his guys, he uses that time to clear up a couple of last details. First, he wanted to announce a brand new way of relating between God and God's image-bearing rebel race. So Jesus changed the tone of the night, changed the meaning of Passover. He said, I know that you've always done it this way since you were little kids, but from now on, when you gather for Passover, you are not going to remember Egypt and you're not going to remember Moses. You're going to remember me. And this bread that, that always meant one thing from now on, it represents my body. And this wine that, that represented the blood that the, of the lamb that our ancestors put on the, on the doorframe, from now on, it's going to represent my blood. And Jesus said, I'm establishing a new covenant in my blood. And this signaled the end. And this is is such a big, big, big idea. It's a big idea that we miss so frequently. It signaled the end of God's conditional covenant with the nation of Israel. And it signaled the beginning of a permanent, unilateral, unconditional covenant with all humanity. That's what we talked about last episode. It's a new relational arrangement. But just like modern contracts come with terms and conditions, the fine print, so ancient covenants come with the fine print. They come with terms and conditions. And the new arrangement between God and humanity would require terms and conditions. And these would replace, replace the terms and conditions of the old covenant. And all along the way, Jesus kept hinting that something new was coming. And it shouldn't have been a surprise to any of his closest followers. Something big was coming, and it wasn't going to be an and. It was going to be an instead of. Jesus came to replace much of what was currently in place. So much before this, much before the Passover that we're talking about in in Jerusalem, about 10 or 11 months before, Jesus is moving through villages and towns, and he's teaching. He's kind of, you know, dropping breadcrumbs all along the way, pointing to what was coming. <coughs> At the same time, there are Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law, and they are constantly trying to trap him and trip him up and separate him from the crowd, right? So one particular afternoon, they joined forces and tried to trap Jesus with his words to embarrass him in front of the crowd so that the crowd would lose respect for Jesus and go back to having respect for Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. Once he lost some of that crowd support, it would be so much easier to arrest him, get rid of Jesus. So months before the Passover that we're talking about, here's what happened in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So They didn't go themselves because they would be recognized. So they sent their disciples. They sent out the interns. And they gave him a very specific question. Go sit in the crowd, blend in with the crowd. When Jesus gets to the Q&A part after the teaching, we want you to ask this specific question. And potential bonus points for you if you ask the question in the right way. You might just end up being the person who traps and trips up Jesus. So Matthew continues, teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you... You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They get them all buttered up. And then they ask him a Revenue Canada taxation kind of question. Jesus responds he's got, with a coin trick. And he sends them scurrying back to their handlers. It's an amazing story, a great story. You should totally read it. So the interns that were sitting in the back of the crowd slink off. They go back to the Pharisees that sent them and they tag out, right? Send the next level in. So here come the Sadducees. Same game plan, sit in the back, blend in with the crowd, and hit them with another loaded question. Verse 24, teacher, they said, Moses told us. And they were always trying to get sound bites of Jesus dissing Moses divide the people between uh, being for Moses or being against Moses. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. And if if you're ever tempted to hold tight to and, and argue for the Old Testament law and to live by the Old Testament law, here is one of those laws that you'd best prepare for. Think about the implications of this law in your own life. The New Testament says that if you're going to keep any of the law, you need to keep it all. So heads up, this is probably illegal where you live, especially if you are already married. But the idea of this law in ancient times was great, and it was actually really compassionate. This is a very pro-women requirement in a world where women were so incredibly vulnerable. If a woman's husband died, she didn't have children, her husband's name wouldn't be carried on and there would be no one to take care of her, no one to hold the property, because women couldn't hold property. It was a good law. So her husband's brother would have to marry her, and he would then have multiple wives. He would need to try to produce children through her so that his brother's name could be carried on so that the property could remain in that family. So they tell Jesus all of this, like he doesn't know, right? And then they turn it into a word game riddle. Verse 25, now, there were 7 brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his brother to his He left his wife to his brother. And then the second brother dies and the third brother dies and the fourth brother dies and the fifth and the sixth and all the way she is marrying the next brother in line. And finally this poor woman who has faced such horrible circumstances married the seventh brother and you are never going to guess what happens next. Yeah, the seventh brother dies. And then mercifully, she dies. Every riddle has a question at the end. And so here's the question. So when she got to heaven, who was she married to? And the crowd goes, wow, that's a good question. Who would she be married to in heaven? Now, now the point of the question was to show how ridiculous It was to believe in an afterlife because the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife or in heaven. That is why they were sad, you see. They believe that humanity all lives for the pleasure of God. And when your life is over, well, it's just over. And that's okay because we live for the pleasure of God, not for the pleasure of ourselves. So they're just trying to show how ridiculous it was to believe in an afterlife, which offended the Pharisees, and it was contrary to what Jesus taught. So they have this trick question, and Jesus he just smiles, right? And he asks them that thing, that thing that they hate when he asks them. He says, Have you not read the scriptures? And the Sadducees are thinking, and the people watching the Sadducees are thinking, Well, that's pretty much all we do is read the scriptures. Have you not read the scriptures? So Jesus skips over Moses, and he goes back to Abraham, where he makes an incredible point based on the tense of a verb, and then he sends them off, scurrying back to their handlers. So now the crowd goes wild, right? They love it when Jesus humiliates the hypocrites, the the ones that are so smug, and they're constantly putting heavier and heavier burdens on the people that they aren't willing to carry themselves. Verse 33 when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. 34 Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So, Pharisees sent their guys in, didn't work. Sadducees sent their guys in, didn't work. So now they're coming back for round two, and they have a really good question. They're pretty sure that this is gonna be the one. This one will trip them up. They're gonna send in one of their best guys, he's a lawyer. Uh, Slip him into the crowd again, wait for the Q&A, raise his hand, and ask the question. Now, this question is a question that you have probably heard if you were raised in church. This is a highlight moment in Jesus' teaching ministry. He uses it to point to what is about to come. Here's what happens next. Verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him. He, he's not here learning, right? He's not, he's not doing good with the law. He's doing the, 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 the thing with the law that it's part of the problem that we always have with a law based mindset. He's testing Jesus. He's trying to trick him. He's trying to catch him. He's trying to condemn him. So he tested him with this question Verse 36 Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which means of all the laws that Moses brought down straight from the hand of God at Mount Sinai, Jesus, which is the greatest? Now, everybody in Jesus' audience pretty much knew the answer to this question. You might know it too. There was a standard Sunday school kind of answer to this standard question. But Jesus saw this as an opportunity to point the way forward to where he was eventually going to lead all of his followers. And Jesus replied, and everybody in the crowd was probably mouthing, the words along with Jesus. And maybe you could do that too. Because it feels good to know the answer that the teacher is going to give. You have to keep in mind that this is a setup question. This is not the lawyer's real question. This is the setup question to be followed with a gotcha question. So verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God. You, maybe you know this. Say it along with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. And that's the end of the standard answer. So you have to now picture the uh, lawyer grinning, uh, taking a breath, to kind of launch into the follow-up zinger, gotcha question. But before he can drop the hammer, Jesus says, and. And the lawyer is going, no, 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 no. No and. If you and, you're going to mess my thing up. So verse 39, and the second is like it. That means the second is equal to it. And this is important. The second is second in sequence. It's not second in greatness. The second law is just as great as the first law. They go together. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the first time in, in all of recorded history that anyone that we know of took a verse from Deuteronomy, grabbed this verse from Leviticus, and then welded them together in this way. The two greatest commandments are love God with all of your your everything. Love God with the entirety of your essence and personhood and love your neighbor as yourself. And this signaled a very important shift. A shift that Jesus had been signaling all along. But this was a really big clue. When it came to religion, this signaled a shift from a vertical orientation to a horizontal orientation orientation. And in the religious world in which Jesus lived, in the religious world perhaps in which you were raised, a person could love God and treat people poorly. A person could claim to be good with God and mistreat other people. And honestly, it breaks my heart because I believe that so many of you have a story that quickly comes to mind. When confronted, these people can quickly say, no, no, don't worry. God and I are good, right? I've confessed my sins to God. He forgave me. Anything beyond that is your issue. But, but listen to the way that you speak to the people at work. Listen to the, to the way you respond to your daughter. Listen to the way you speak to your spouse. No, 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 no. Things between God and me are good. This was the religion of the first century. But honestly, it's worse than that because that's pretty much the way of every religion of every century. And Jesus says something new is on the horizon. This is all about to change with me. And then he says this in verse 40. All the law and the prophets. And in the first century, when you say the law and the prophets, you mean the whole Bible. That was your way that you spoke about their Bible. You called it the law and the prophets. Our Old Testament was their sacred scripture. Genesis to Malachi. And although not in the same order as we have them placed, but Jesus says the entire body of sacred literature hang on these two commandments. And his quick summary broke down to this. Love God, love your neighbor. All the prophets, all your forefathers dangle from these two. Everything those guys say is based on these two commandments. And if you are reading along and I don't know, let's say, Isaiah, and you get confused, just go back to love God and love your neighbor. And if you get into Daniel and you're getting a little jammed up in that apocalyptic literature, just go back to love God and love your neighbor. That's the starting point. Everything else is history, explanation, and commentary. So in other words, love for God is best illustrated demonstrated and authenticated by love for others and in this moment Jesus reduces all of 600 plus Jewish commands to two big ideas that are equal in value but he wasn't through the problem at this point is that for a person in the first century a Jewish person in the first century the term neighbor already had a definition a neighbor was another Jew So in Leviticus 19, 18, where love your neighbor as yourself comes from, there's a definition baked right into the passage. In this passage, a neighbor is another Jewish person. So Jesus takes it a step further. And a couple weeks later, he's in a similar situation, and another lawyer comes and asks another trick question. Who would have seen that coming? And in response to that, Jesus changes the definition of neighbor for every generation and for every nation. He guides them into the parable of the Good Samaritan. At the end of this parable, he answers the question, who is my neighbor? And he changes the definition of neighbor. And from this point forward, Jesus says the new definition for neighbor is not simply other Jews, not someone who is like you and not someone you like. From now on, a neighbor is anyone, anywhere with a need that you can meet. This is groundbreaking and beautiful and terrifying all at the same time, that that now love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for those who are nothing like you and who may not like you. This was so new, but these are all Breadcrumbs, right? Unbeknownst to his audience, these are all signs pointing in a specific direction, hinting at the new term, the new condition for the new covenant. And he chose Passover as the moment for the official big reveal. They just finished the meal. They'd washed. They'd had their feet washed. Now they're, they're so off balance. Out of nowhere, Judas gets up, leaves. No explanation. And Jesus, having replaced Moses as the covenant maker because Moses was the one who established the covenant between God and the nation of Israel, now Jesus has just originated a brand new covenant between God and all of humanity. Even though they didn't understand it at the time, that's what was happening. And again, we talked about this in our last episode. Jesus not only takes on the role of covenant maker, now Jesus steps into the role of lawgiver. And the new covenant, like the one he just replaced, would have its own set of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's, but not 600, and not even two. This is one of the most significant moments in the life of Jesus, but I bet that you've never heard of it spoken about in that way. For centuries, it has been so underplayed, so downplayed, so glossed over, given so little emphasis, because what happens next would ultimately change the world. And Jesus says to his guys, who had no idea of the significance of these words, John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you. And if they had been thinking straight, they would have said, wait a minute, Jesus, you can't give us new commands. Only God gives commands. You know the story. Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, and God gave Moses the law. Moses brought it back down, Moses delivered the law, but Moses didn't originate the law. So Jesus, if you're saying you're giving us a new command, once again, you're doing, and you're doing this all the time, Jesus, right? It's as if that you're stepping in between us and God, you're playing the role of God here. Who do you think you are? Okay, I think we're sort of getting the idea of who you think you are, and frankly, That's a little disturbing to us. It makes me kind of want to look over my shoulder all the time. I want to know if anyone else can hear this stuff you're saying. A new command? Come on, we don't need any new commands. We have enough already. Besides, didn't you just reduce 600 plus down to two? So then is this the the third command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. So now what is your third command? but Jesus had not come to add to. Jesus had come to take from. Jesus had come to reduce even two to one. And if the church gets this right, everything changes. It continues, love, one, another. To which they thought, that's not new, and Jesus would have said, but it's but I'm not through. There's a stipulation. And so he goes on and continues the verse. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Oh. And in this moment, he could have gone around the room pointing person to person. Maybe he did. And no one recorded because he could have paused in this moment. As I have loved you, Matthew. Do you remember when we met? Yes, sir. Do you remember what you were doing? Yes, sir? Say it out loud, please. Uh, I was a tax farmer, a tax collector. Do do you remember when we met, what I said to you? Yes, sir, you invited me to follow you. And Peter jumps in. I remember that. (laughs) I can tell you that I was not happy about any of that. I don't think any of us were happy about when Matthew started following you, because if Matthew's following you, then Matthew's going to be hanging around with us, and that's just going to get embarrassing. Jesus quiets Peter back down. Matthew, do you remember where we were when I asked you to follow me? Where we went after I asked you? And he Yes, sir, we went to my house. And Peter goes, oh, oh, I remember that. And Peter, Matthew, for the rest of your life, the grace I extended to you that day, I want you to extend that to every single person you meet for the rest of your life it's not the golden rule we're kicking it up a notch as I have loved you that's how you are to love other people Nathaniel uh, yes sir do you remember when we met yes sir do you remember what you said about my hometown and my parents all my friends Nazareth you said what good thing could come from Nazareth do you remember that Nathaniel Yes, sir? Do you remember how I responded? Yes, sir, you invited me to be one of your closest followers. Nathaniel, I want you to extend that same kind of grace, that same kind of acceptance to everyone you meet, regardless of how they treat you. Guys, do you remember that day that I was preaching that sermon about eating my flesh and drinking my blood? You Uh, John 6 here for reference in case you're looking for that people got nervous right because they couldn't follow the illustration people started leaving and then that afternoon as we're all sitting around I know that you were glancing off to the sides and we started losing the crowd that day remember that guys you remember that John you do I know because you wrote it down do you remember how I responded when I busted you I said you don't want to go too do you And you were smart enough not to lie to me. By that time, you knew that I would know that you were lying. In spite of all that I've done for you, every single one of you wanted to just blend into the crowd and disappear. Do you remember that? Yes, sir. Do you remember how I responded? You wanted to unfollow me, but I never chose to unfollow you. I never brought it up. That's how I want you to treat each other and the people you meet for the rest of your life. This this is just the Passover meal. You ain't seen nothing yet. Two days from now, three days from now, four days from now, I'm going to take this thing to a whole nother level. Remember this night because your responsibility is to love other people as I have loved and as I am about to love by this one thing. By this one thing, verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. Not if you love me because I'm leaving. Not if you love God because nobody knows. If you love one another. And his point being that your love for me and your love for your heavenly father will be demonstrated by how well you love each other. By how well you love the people that are difficult to love. And compared to the extraordinarily complicated system of laws that they had grown up with, this was far less complicated, but it was far more demanding. Now, let me try to illustrate why, but I need to ask you to keep this a secret, okay? Don't tell anyone else about this. I'm going to confess to you. If you give me a list of rules, I can find a loophole. The more you give me, the more space there is, and the more potential for loopholes, right? But I bet it's not just me. I bet if I give you a list of rules, you can find a loophole too. If you are a parent, oh man, oh man, you already understand this completely. Well, mom, you didn't say that exactly, right? No fair, dad. You said be home, but you didn't say where at home. And Dad, I, you, you said I couldn't play, but you didn't say, but you never said, In other words, there was no fine print, right? And for this to work, Dad, you're just going to have to spell it all out every single time. There's just no way that I can understand what you mean unless you tell me exactly what you mean every single time in every situation. So it sounds like so many adults or lawyers or corporations in court. Loopholes are our business when we want to do what we want to do. When there are rules plural, there is space. But it's worse than that. Because if you give me a Bible, and I get to use the whole Bible, I can find a loophole for just about anything that you want to do. And this is why people like me get questions like this all the time. And you've asked this before. I can almost guarantee it. Well, what does the Bible say about Right? I want to do A. Does the Bible say that there's anything wrong with A? Because I want to do it. So if the Bible doesn't say A specifically, well, that's not the same. That's more like B. I'm talking about A. So I'm good to go, right? I thought these questions would would stop when I left youth ministry. Does the Bible say there's anything wrong with all those questions? I understand what's behind so many of those questions, but here's the issue. We come and we say, here's what I want to do. And I don't want to do anything that God is absolutely against. But If he doesn't spell it out specifically, could I just be good to go? And the answer is give me a Bible and I can find you an opportunity to be good to go. We are loophole questers. I'll find one. You'll find some wiggle room. And Jesus walked into a religious environment where the religious leaders were professional loophole creators and the hypocrisy was just overwhelming, and it drove people away from the very God that created them to worship Him. But new covenant love, the the new covenant command closes up all the loopholes because there is only one command, and you can't slide in between when there's just one. This is the brilliance of Jesus. Besides, after all, I'm not always sure what to believe. I'm not always sure who to believe. But I almost always know what love requires of me. The old old covenant question was this. What does the law require? The modern version to the old covenant question is, what does the Bible require? The new covenant question, the, the, the Jesus question, what does love require of me? And here's something that a junior high student or a high school student or a university student can pick up. They can carry it with them everywhere they go. Here's something that we all need to know. But here's something that has to become more foundational in our earnest pursuit of Jesus living. Because every New Testament imperative, that's like a command. Every New Testament imperative, especially the ones that come after the resurrection, every New Testament imperative is simply an application of Jesus' new covenant command. The New Testament is not full of a bunch of rules. The New Testament is full of one rule with dozens of applications. Now, love, just as I have loved you, is what all of the law and the prophets hang from. It's also what all the epistles and the gospels hang from. Everything else is explanation. Everything else is application. Everything else is history. Everything else is background. To which you're no doubt saying, oh, can't possibly be that simple. I've never heard that it was that simple. And Yes, it can. Because the Savior of the world waited until the time was right to deliver this final blow to our ego, this final blow to our selfishness, this final blow to this thing in me and this thing in you that wants to have my way. But I justify it because I found a gap. I found a loophole. People miss this all the time, but I'll tell you who didn't miss it. The Apostle Paul, the religious professional, the church planter. He didn't miss it. The Apostle Paul applied this one New Testament, New Covenant command to everything. Here's a few examples. No doubt you've heard this before. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Well, should I forgive because the Bible says so? Paul says... What's the Bible? The Bible doesn't come into being for a couple of hundred more years. So Paul, are we supposed to be kind and compassionate because you told us to? Paul, why should we be kind and compassionate? He continues, just as. Two of the most powerful words in the New Testament, and you will find them throughout Paul's letters. Just as in Christ, God forgave you should I do it because the Bible says so? No. You forgive because you are forgiven. Well, why, why should I be patient with her? Why, why should I be kind to him? He's not kind to me. Show me the verse that says that I have to. And Paul says, he, here's why you should be patient, and here's why you should be kind. Because in my letter to the people in the city of Corinth, I explain it like this in chapter 13. I describe that love is patient. And love is kind. And Those are your marching orders. Next verse. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And here's the core ingredient of the sexual ethic. You never do anything that dishonors another person, even if it's consensual, if you are a Jesus follower. Well, is there any verse that says that? No. No, I don't have a verse for that. Honor him. Honor her. Honor her husband. Honor his wife. Honor his children. Honor her future relationship. Honor his future relationship. You put other people first. It's not a verse. Love is the mandate. Love is the command. There is no wiggle room. There's no place to cheat. There's no loophole. It's so uncomplicated. It's so freeing. It's so remarkably compelling. And it's nothing like Paradise by the dashboard lights. Paul goes on and he says in Philippians 2 verse 5, he says, in your relationships with one another. Paul says you don't need complexity. It's simple. Just have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And when you're wondering how to respond to your husband, you go, oh right. I'm to respond to my husband the way that Christ responded to me when I was an idiot, when I was dishonest. When I was insecure, when I did the wrong thing, when I got caught and was trying to cover for myself, that's it. Nice and simple. Just ask, what did God do in Christ for me? That's what I'm supposed to do for other people. Less complicated. Far more demanding. Here's another one. This one is to the church in Ephesus, chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore. As dearly loved children, in verse 2, walk in the way of loving. Oh, that sounds nice, right? The way of love sounds very romantic. Paul, what do you mean by the way of love? Just as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. No loophole. There are dozens and dozens of examples. Paul does not give Christians a bunch of things to do. Paul gives Christians a bunch of applications for Jesus' New Testament, New Covenant command. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that's the one commandment. That's it. That's the fine print of the New Covenant. These are the terms and these are the conditions. This is the overarching ethic to this brand new movement. The old covenant had the ark of the covenant. That they would walk behind and they would go out into battle. This is the, the new covenant. Mark of the covenant. That we go out and walk behind. This is our battle cry. This is our identifier. In Jesus' first century followers they got it. Their others first willingness to put others before themselves in a culture that recognized and embraced violence and power and control was completely appalling to the culture. In a culture that worshiped victory and strength and the idea of putting other people first seemed so weak. But this upside down kingdom, when it was lived out, became incredibly appealing. And then eventually it became contagious. And it went on to circle the globe, and we are here today because the first century Christians got this, and against all odds, sandwiched between the temple and the Roman Empire, with no territory, no authority, and no military, they survived, and they thrived. And they were fueled by this single idea, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my followers. By this one thing, everyone will know that you're my followers if you love one another. Kind Father, thank you. Thank you for reminding us of what it has taken for you to show us your love. And whenever we're tempted to say, I don't know if God loves me, we can remember we have a moment, we have a spot in history we go back to. It's not that I feel good right now, it's I know that God loves me because. He sent his son Jesus to die for me. And then the love that we are called to show to other people is to reflect that, to to appear in the same way, that we would treat others with love, whether we think they deserve it or not. This is the way that we're supposed to interact with the world that's around us, our, our communities, our relatives, our employees and our employers. We are called to love one another. And Jesus, I'll be honest, it, it seems like that is, is too hard and, and I, I want to start making excuses and I want, to start, I want to try and find a loophole in that too, right? I want to be able to say, yeah, but not in this situation. You didn't mean that here. And, well, there's got to be some exceptions and we are so prone to look for those exceptions instead of trying to hear what was truly given. Go and find a way to love one another. That's the way that Jesus loves us. That's what we're called to do. That is the term and the condition of being part of the new covenant between God and all of humanity. It's open to everyone. Thanks for making it open to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be able to, even now, give me a place where I can consider showing love. Because I know that I want to find an excuse and I want to find a loophole. Put into my head a place where I can show love to someone today. Not the worst person in the world, just give me an example. One place. One place that I can move. One place, one step of obedience. I can take one step of obedience, God. Bring that to my mind. Bring that to the minds of my friends that are listening right now. What one thing can we do that would move us closer to you? Maybe it's going to be using our words more wisely being generous with our time, treasure our talent and our uh, gratitude. Maybe maybe it'll be uh, an interaction with someone. I, I, I can do that for you. I can get this for you. I can send you something. I can call you. I can tell you. I can do that. God, send an idea into our heads that we might have an opportunity to obey you today. Thanks for interacting with us. And don't leave us on our own. Don't leave me on my own, to my own devices. I'll mess it up. For my friends, the same thing. Don't depart from them. Holy Spirit, be in them. Be present with them. Draw them closer to yourself and continue to transform our minds. Transform us into your image. We know it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be instant, but you can do all things. You use all circumstances and all situations for us, for me, today. Do this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.